2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're taking the rest of the week off, so we're bringing you some of our favorite shows from the archives. Today, Brian Terry. He's the kind of chef who sees food not only as sustenance, but as a way of probing and challenging the world. Known for his distinctive work reconceptualizing soul food into vegan fare, his cooking practice now extends to a six-year run as chef-in-residence at the Museum of African Diaspora. But his new project, a book called Black Food, that he conceived and edited, might be his most ambitious project yet. This is not your standard cookbook, and that is a good thing. We'll be back with my interview with Brian Terry after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the introduction of Bryant Terry's new book, Black Food, Stories, Art and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora, Terry presents the work of the dozens of people who contributed as a kind of altar honoring the experiences and traditions of the African diaspora while urging us to stop and dive deeply into the politics of pleasure of rest. Terry writes that Black Food represents a bridge from our ties to traditions in the motherland to our wildest dreams that will manifest in the future. And he's begun to realize one of his dreams, publishing more writers of color through a new imprint of 10-Speed Press called 4Color. Black Food is the first book to appear from the new imprint, and it's even accompanied by one of Terry's signature musical playlists, which we'll be hearing cut from throughout the show. So thank you for the music, and welcome to the show, Bryant. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure to chop it up with you, Alexis. Yeah, it's good to good to talk with you. Um, I want you to talk about the vision for this book. Uh for those who haven't seen it, it's extremely beautiful. This is really unlike your other cookbooks, though. Sure. Well, I think
3: one of the biggest digressions uh or departures from my body of work is that this is actually it, it isn't plant-based. I, most people know me as a vegan chef and a mm-hmm. vegan cookbook author. And it was uh, an interesting process because I really had to take off my um, hat of being an author and put on my hat as an editor and a publisher. Mm-hmm. And I knew that um, allowing people to tell the most authentic story of their connection with Black food uh, was the best decision for this book project. And so I encourage people to offer a plant-based dish because I think we need more delicious and interesting plant-based dish from some of the uh, finest chefs in the world. And I didn't want to be overly prescriptive. And uh, I'm, I'm happy that the majority of the recipes are actually uh, vegetarian and vegan. And, you know, there's a little something for everyone in here. And in terms of the vision, you know, I, I just wanted to, this is this is a love letter uh, to black people um, you know I don't know if I, well I know you know Alexis about the the 90s uh, hip-hop clothing brand FUBU for us yeah. by us uh, by Damon John and when I was reaching out to all the contributors that's what I um, was very clear about I said you know I really want us to approach this book without concern for the white gaze without concern for um, explaining or translating this is us talking to each other and we're inviting the world to um, listen in and and be a part of the conversation.
2: Well, and I was, you know, looking at uh, some of the noted inspirations that you you had for this book, like Toni Morrison's uh, The Black Book and uh, other kinds of, like, compendiums, right? Because this isn't, you know, if people are thinking about a traditional recipe book, you know, where they'd be like, oh, appetizers, entrees. <laughs> it's not really built like that, right? So um, give me a couple of those, like, you know, touch points for you, what you were kind of grounding yourself in in previous publishing experiments. Sure.
3: Well, I I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about uh, one of the biggest
2: inspirations for Black food
3: is my residency at the Museum of the African Diaspora. And in 2015, our former executive director, Linda Harrison, approach me because she really saw the importance of including programming in our, our powerful, um, small but mighty museum um, in San Francisco. And, and just to be clear, you know, this this museum just plays such a vital role in a city that's had such a, a rapidly dwindling population of Black people over the past mm-hmm. couple of decades, um, and just holding space, creating community. And because of many of the issues that intersect in terms of like the uh, the exponential rise in preventable diet-related illnesses among African-American communities, uh, the kind of environmental racism, all these issues that I think we can use food as a kind of jumping point to talk about. These are conversations that are vital to San Francisco. And so um, having this program that allowed me
2: to create you know, th- yeah, what did residence- you do? What does a chef in residence do at a, <laughs> at a <laughs> well, museum?
3: Yeah, great question. It, it, you know, I, I'd like to say we pioneered this uh, program and we continue to get messages every week from different institutions around the globe. Um, maybe they're not interested in wholesale creating a chef and residence program, but more people are seeing the importance of talking about health, food, and farming issues. And so, I everything from um, panel discussions, and I was very uh, intentional about the first program we did, which is a panel uh, discussion called Black Women, Food and Power, because I wanted to kick off my residency recognizing the historical and the contemporary role of Black women in the production, distribution and consumption of food and food knowledge, because we had a number of scholars on there. So yeah, we had Psyche Williams-Forsome, who's um, one of the foremost scholars Um, of food, um, specifically African-American foodways in the country. Gail Myers, who's a farmer, a poet, and a scholar. Uh, Nicole Taylor, a brilliant um, activist and and journalist in the South. Carolyn Randall Williams, um, one of your, I think you guys were at Harvard at the same time, brilliant poet and um, TV host. So we talked about these issues. And let me tell you, Alexis, I knew that this program was, like there was a hunger for this program, pun intended. When I saw that, you know, I expected that there'd be people driving up from Los Angeles, and you know, it wasn't surprising that people were coming from Pacific Northwest. But when I saw that people were flying from the East Coast—New
2: Jersey, <laughs> New York, Philadelphia—you flew from Atlanta hour for program, this program, <laughs> right?
3: <laughs> and so I knew that um, this was something that um, was groundbreaking and important for Black people around the diaspora, throughout the diaspora, not just in the U.S. And so I had always. Thought about creating a book project that really shared with the world this magical, brilliant, thought-provoking programming that we're doing at our museum. And um, 2020, uh, you know, we can talk about the series of events that really were the, the catalyst. <laughs> Why not, not yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. And it was just, you know, um, on the heels of a lot of the um, uprisings and, and revelations of uh, racism within food media. I felt like, you know, this was a time. No more, you know. I put all these. Uh, unnecessary barriers in front of this book the imprint and i was like no this is the moment this is a historical and movement moment and i want this to be my
2: contribution and it is um a a pretty amazing document like you really feel like people will look back at this book and say like wait this was really trying to trying to do something um and one of the things that really struck me is Had you kind of taken this diasporic turn before you started doing the the chef and residency gig? Or was that what really led you to what's really like an amazing and interesting and very specific array of African stories that are in this book?
3: I've been thinking about the diaspora and. Just you know, so many complicated ways. Since I was in a PhD program at NYU in history, and I had a an emphasis on uh, the the African diaspora, studying under. Um, my advisor, Robin D.G. Kelly. And when I moved into food and went to culinary school and was thinking about food, you can't talk about African-American cuisine without looking at it through a diasporic lens. Right. Mm-hmm. You think about the food that traveled from West and Central Africa to the New World and how that intermingled with the indigenous foods and flavors and um, cooking techniques of this land and then the influence of European uh, cuisine and cooking techniques and um, flavors and and staples. And so I've always said that, you know, in my mind, African-American cuisine is the the original modern global fusion cuisine. And so, um, you know, if you look at my body of work, I've done what I did in Black Food, in all of my books, you know, I've always had the suggested soundtrack, as you mentioned. I've always kind of looked at um, food, you know, even thinking about African American food, kind of looking at it through the more diasporic lens. This is the first time I've had uh, a, a lot of money to really do it so well as I've <laughs> did, done in Black Food. But you know, one of the feelings, just going back to one of the major inspirations, Alexis, um, Toni Morrison. There are a couple things. One, I want to say that her Black Book. It just floored me when I I remember being an undergrad and just stumbling upon it in the library and finding this kind of compendium, this this survey of African-American life and culture and history um, from like the 1600s into the 1960s. And the way that she combined not just text, but, you know song lyrics song, and yeah. archival photos and ephemera like th- the feeling it had it just moved me not on just an intellectual um kind of cerebrally but it moved me in a very like viscerally and spiritual way as well and I wanted this book project to do that I want people to, to pick up this book and just to feel just move to be better people move to learn more about our history and culture move to make food to build community around the table <clears throat> and you know just kind of you know finishing on Tony Morrison's inspiration when i emailed the more than 100 potential contributors to the book project the thing that i um i invited them to do is to consider tony morrison's quote where she invites us to consider what our lives look like without racism. What does, you know, what does black life look like without the albatross of white supremacy around our necks? And how can, you know, that energy come to this book? And so I ask people, you know, what is our magic? What is our brilliance? What is our agency? You know, that's what I want this book to be about. And um, not really kind of like revisiting many of the atrocities and ways in which we've been erased and marginalized, because we can't talk about the history without acknowledging that but I wanted this to be about more than that
2: so tell me how the book is organized like give give me a few of these sections so that people can kind of get a sense of of how that brilliance sort of translated onto the page
3: sure well I mean literally Alexis the thing is many of the chapters and this is just how deeply uh the book is inspired by my residency many of the chapters are literally pulled from the title (laughs) of the program that i did at the museum so black women food and power uh land liberation and food justice black queer food these are all programs that i did at moad where i invited these brilliant people um working in um you know the food space to come and just dig deeply into these issues and so you know, in terms of the um, structure, you know, I really think I, 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 it's so important for me to start with just spirit. You know, just start with mm-hmm. I don't know, however people want to think about it—infant intelligence, the primal sound, just like that that quiet moment that I think we all experience, and which is so central African American culture. Just like acknowledging the land, acknowledging community, acknowledging the ancestors, and um, all the elements that you know help get the food to our plate—from the, the 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 natural elements to the animals to the you know the people who transported and made the food—and and I was so blessed to have uh, Reverend Marvin White offer those words to open up the book because I, when I have in person events in the Bay Area, I'm calling up Marvin White and I'm like, listen, brother, I need you (laughs) to start off with a prayer, (laughs) with something just to like set the energy and really bring people into the experience that we're having. And so, you know, from there, I just was really just kind of thinking about just whatever the kind of arc of movement that I imagine in my mind, starting with, you know, just life on the continent. And, you know, it was important for me to really capture um, life on the continent without just the, the lens of just kind of like suffering and poverty.
2: We're we're going to talk, we're going to talk about more about that. uh, When we come back from the break, we're talking with Brian Terry, chef and food justice activist. He's editor and curator of the new cookbook, black food. And we're going to go into this break, hearing a bit of Alice Coltrane's blue Nile. It's part of the motherland section of black food, the new cookbook by Terry. We'll be back with more. I'm Alexis
0: Madrigal.
1: back.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Chef Brian Terry about Black Food, a new cookbook he edited and curated celebrating food, art, and stories of the African diaspora. You just heard a bit of Guy Warren's Talking Drums, a song from the book Spirit section playlist. And we're going to get into the spirit of this book a bit more with Brian and also with one of the book's contributors, Reverend Marvin K. White, who joins us now. Welcome to Forum, Minister Marvin. Good
4: morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, thank you for joining us. Minister Marvin is a poet, preacher, writer, and artist who is the Minister of Celebration at Glide Memorial Church. Uh, I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt of your piece titled From Scratch in just a moment. But first, how did you get involved with the book and what inspired your piece?
4: Yeah, so any time that Brian calls on me for anything, I I respond, um, and, you know, particularly when we're talking about the diaspora and blackness and food ways and, and culture, um, that there is a space made for, for spirituality, which cannot be extracted from Black food ways. Um, I just thought it was an amazing assignment and a, a real way to talk about the diaspora and the ways that we have to stop and bless, you know, our meals and show gratitude, um, not for the, you know, for capitalism and not for the ways in which we are you know, deemed worthy to eat, but because we are a part of this natural system and we're grateful to be there. So I'm really, um, anytime I can bring, you know, blackness and and spirituality and, and culture together, I'm there. And so this book represented a chance to do that.
2: Let's hear you uh, read a little bit uh, from from scratch.
4: On the first day, God made a meal plan, finally had it all figured out, finally had a taste for something. On the second day, God made a grocery list, one of everything God thought. On the third day, God planted a garden, God's own farmer's market. On the fourth day, God sharpened God's knives, God created iron and cast it into skillets. God preheated the oven and forgot about it. We will talk about this hell another time. On the fifth day, God chopped and God baked and God boiled and God braised and God broiled and God fried and God grilled and God roasted and God poached and God steamed and God stewed. For hours, God stewed. On the sixth day, God opened all the pots and a mist went up from the pots and watered the whole face of God and God sweat the vegetables. On the seventh day, God created company, and they came over and they ate with God. And God looked around at God's kitchen and ended their work, which they had done, and they rested. On the eighth day, Idis. This is the story and the history of cooking by sight and by smell. This is the history of creation of the heavens and the earth and soul food. Before any Tupperware, before any tinfoil, before anybody said how they would have made it, God created satisfaction.
2: That was Minister Marvin, poet, preacher, writer, and artist. He's the Minister of Celebration at Glide Memorial Church. And that was an opening prayer poem uh, from scratch from the new book edited by Brian Terry, Chef and food justice activist. He's also the chef-in-residence at San Francisco's Museum of the African Diaspora and a winner of the James Beard Award for Culinary Excellence. We want to hear from you, too. What are your questions for Chef Brian Terry? Do you have a favorite recipe of his that you'd like to shout out? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, Brian, I want to ask you a little bit about the role of ritual in this book. Can you talk about kind of the role that you tried to set up for it? Like, you know, someone's opening a book, that's kind of its own ritual, and then there's all these sort of almost like um, prayers and pathways that you could have your own rituals with this book. Sure. You know, I think it's
3: important when people think about the title of this book, Black Food, that they think about food and its many definitions. We're, we're obviously talking about literal sustenance and the recipes <clears throat> that I hope people will make and, and gather around the table with. But <clears throat> I also wanted to feed people um, intellectually with the riveting essays. I wanted to move people spiritually with the the, the poems and the, um, the powerful artwork that we included. And I, I, I really wanted to provide people with tools because, so Alexis, you got to... Remember, this is a pandemic book. This is a pan- this is my right. pandemic baby right here. <laughs> we put this book to- together in nine months over the pandemic. And wow. um, boy, was that um, an, an arduous task. But we did it. And within that, people are going through a lot. You know, many of our team members um, had you know, just life was happening. People were in their families were getting ill. Some people passed away, including people in my family. Um, People were overworked, overstressed, trying to just figure out this new historic moment and and how to kind of thrive. And I mean, at the most, but at least exist and, and, you know, just kind of like stay afloat. And, you know, I thought I thought it was important that we tapped on many of the brilliant people who were really encouraging us to think about the role of uh, self care and rest in this moment. Tricia Hersey, um, aka the NAP Minister, you know her work has been you know so widely celebrated over the past uh, two years because people recognize that capitalism is just running us ragged, and even trying to maintain the same pace that we typically do, um, you know, during the pandemic and shelter in place is just wearing out. And so everything from, you know, the okra bath that um Crystal Mac uh Chef and Creative in Baltimore offered to just rituals around connecting with nature and, you know, plant medicine. I really wanted to provide people with all the tools that Will inspire them to think about self-care and and not just the kind of capitalist, you know, consumer-driven self-care where you gotta go and spend a lot of money at a spa and you gotta go and you know get some <laughs> expensive mask or, or aromatherapy or whatever, but really thinking about like self-care in a more expansive way. Like what does self-care mean? Self-care means healing um, generational trauma. Self-care means. Um, you know, a, a lot more than just going buying something that's going to make us feel good temporarily. And so I'm, I'm glad that I, I feel like in terms of the response from the people since the book was published two weeks ago, that has been one of the sections that people huh. have been, you know, responding to um, the most. I, I get a lot of messages about how they found <clears throat> a lot of tools to take care of themselves in this moment in the book. And that makes me really happy.
2: Uh, Mr. Marvin, what's your what do you think ritual does for people? Like you know, you 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 honor the food, but what does it do for for people themselves when they take that second to to recognize that uh, that is natural and other systems that went into putting that
4: on their plate? Yeah, I, I think it just reminds us that you know that Black folks are the original mindfulness community. You know, that, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. we, we stop and pause you know, um, enslaved or incarcerated, you know, we remove ourselves from systems and we stop and we meditate and then we proceed at at our own pace. You know, I definitely believe that Black folks are inherently theorists and theologians, you know, and we participate in creation by the ways in which we prepare prepare and name our dishes. You know, so you go from you know, naming food, to making dishes out of the food you name, to making meals out of the dishes, making holidays out of the meals.
2: Making TikToks out of the meals. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes,
4: yes. And you just, it just keeps unfolding. Um, but you know, we imagine, you know, and I imagine this book as a sacred text in addition to a cookbook. It's, it's a collection of Psalms.
2: Brent Terry, um, you opened Spirit, which is, this is a really interesting decision, I thought. You opened that Spirit prologue with just two recipes, both of them for biscuits. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah.
3: You know, I, I often think about... You're just like, spirit. actually,
2: I just love biscuits. What can I
3: do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's part of it. But, you know, I, I think what I was... I, I'm often thinking about just the ritual of um, kind of breaking bread and just communion and just kind of in the spirit of what Marvin was just describing, just this... Um, just creating a moment just I think that first bite to me is is sacrosanct and you know oftentimes when we sit down that first bite uh, that we consume is bread you know you think about you go out to a restaurant they bring you some bread or, or some kind of carby thing and so I I felt like that was a, a great way to kind of open up the the book and just give some people something I really you know, when I think about black food, I'm often thinking about how I want to help jog people's memory. You know, so much of this book is drawing on history Mm -hmm. and people's memories. And, and, you know, there's this, it's like this cultural amnesia that I found when I am traveling the country, you know, I, I sometimes have done up to 90 events in one year speaking engagements. And it's interesting when I go around and I often will start the conversation by asking, well, how many of your family members had, you know, Kitchen gardens, and how many of your family members, you know, canned and pickled and preserved, and you know, had agrarian roots. And then people start raising their hands. But it's almost like, oh yeah, I forgot. (laughs) Nana had that, you know, big cupboard where she had our pickled vegetables, and oh yeah, I forgot we used to eat out of our kitchen garden. And so, so much of my work is about helping us remember, piece back these histories that I think we often um, and and memories that we often forget in um, you know this capitalist society that just keeps us. Busy and, and and working towards these often unattainable
2: goals, <laughs> uh, Minister Marvin. One more question before we let you go. What do you hope people take away from from this book?
4: Yeah, I you know it's it's the same with what I hope people take away when I preach that they say to themselves, "Oh hell, I could have wrote that," you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> It's 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 the connection. you're a better person
2: than I am. That's not what I hope people think when I, <laughs> when I write something.
4: <laughs> I, I want it democratized. I want folks to know that this belongs to them. I know I want them to know that when they can't go get a book, that there is a recipe in them, you know, and they just have to connect to like the larger move of black culinary spirit and know that it's in there. I love that we collected it here, that Brian collected it here but I want folks to know that this, this is what's in them.
3: Mm. Mm. And can I just piggyback on that? I just want to say, I'm so glad you mentioned that Marvin, because that is what I am preaching when I'm out speaking about food issues. And, you know, maybe I'll run myself out of business, but I always say, you know, cookbooks are a guide. I understand that a lot of people, because of the way our lives are structured, Um, people aren't cooking as much. And part of my goal is as an educator and raising people's food IQ and empowering them to, you know, have the fundamental skills of cooking. But ultimately, what I tell people is, you know, the magic of cooking is about spontaneity, creativity, using what's on hand, um, just really drawing from within and, 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 you know, kind of bringing out those grandmother measuring energies and just like making something out of nothing. And so, you know, that's really what it's about is drawing, finding the black food compendium within ourselves.
2: Mr. Mm. Marvin, we're going to let you go. Uh, Reverend Marvin K. White, poet, teacher, writer, artist, minister of celebration at Glide Memorial Church. And he contributed the opening prayer poem from scratch, which he read a piece from here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Um, Brian, I want to ask you uh, about the motherland section. Um, But first, I'm going to get some calls. I want to ask folks, what does black food mean to you? Is there a family tradition or recipe that makes you feel especially grounded and rooted in your blackness? Uh, We're having a little bit of trouble with the phone. So share your reflections with us. Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum. Or you can email those comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. And looks like the phones may have just opened, so you can give us a call, too. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Um, I wanted to ask you about these pretty fascinating essay, uh, Motherland, by uh, Freda Moyambo. Um, it's kind of a fascinating way to both sort of honor and dissect ideas about Africa with the specificity of this particular story, kind of countering a lot of those colonial abstractions. Can you tell us about there's a lot of stories like that in this book. And um, I just want you to talk a little bit about them.
3: I'll tell you, can I tell you about one of my, can I tell you about one of my favorite stories in the book? Yeah. Um, Well, but before I do that, because you mentioned something that I I feel like I'd like to address. Um, And it's just like, what is black food for me? And, and, And what, you know, in kind of crafting this book, what's the kind of, expansive way in which I'm encouraging us to think about black food and that term. So I think about when I think about black food, I understand that for a lot of people, when they hear the term soul food or when they employ the term soul food, what in their minds that's synonymous with black food, right? Black food, soul food. And that whole that term soul food has always fascinated me because if you ask a dozen people what it means, you likely get a dozen different answers. And in many ways, I'm not interested in concretizing that term because it's so expansive. And I actually want to challenge us to sit with the expansive expansiveness of that term because I think I think it's often been used in a reductive way when it comes to different parts of black culture, particularly food, soul, right? I think most of us are aware that in the 1960s during the black power movement, that word started to signify this kind of cultural belief in black resilience in the face of white supremacy. Um, and then, you know, in an effort to celebrate our cultural foods and inventiveness of black people in the face of oppression, the term soul food came to represent African-American cuisine and the popular imagination. But what I found is when people say like uh, black food, they're thinking about, uh, one of two things is what I found: the kind of antebellum survival foods upon mm. which many African Americans, um, enslaved Africans, had to rely. And you know the problem with even like equating black food with that, and and it's so often very negative. It's like vilifying because what people say is that's slave food. Like, why would I want to eat you know that black food, soul food? That's just slave food. That's something that we need to kind of leave behind. And it one just. It, it kind of flattens the institution of slavery and doesn't recognize, you know, the institution of slavery wasn't a monolith. Maybe in parts of the Black Belt, it was more of a paternalistic system in which every need of enslaved African material need was provided by plantation owners. But, you know, the institution looked different in the way that um the institution of slavery in the coastal Carolinas or the Caribbean and the Louisiana looked It all looked different. And so, just Mm -hmm. to equate it with soul food, is this historically inaccurate and just wrong headed? But uh, the other thing people are thinking about are the big flavored uh, meats and the Mm -hmm. overcooked vegetables and the sugary desserts that one might find at a soul food restaurant. And so I'm not denying that either one, like those are both part of this larger, more complex and diverse cuisine. But when we talk about it so often, things like the kind of foods that my Grandparents and their parents and their parents would grow in their um, home gardens and urban farms, like you know, dark leafy greens like collards, mustards, turnips, kale, dandelions. You know, things like sugar snap peas, pole beans, muscadine grapes, walnuts. These diverse staples that are part of traditional African American cuisine. That I think any Western-trained allopathic physician or dietitian or nutritionist <laughs> would say we should all include in a healthful whole food diet. And I want people to move past the reductive stereotypes. And to embrace the diversity of our food and know that, you know, in terms of Black liberation, in terms of like addressing this exponential rise in diet related health illnesses among Black people, we needn't look any further than our own cultural cuisine. Like, that's where our liberation lies. Like, these are our superfoods. And I really want people throughout the diaspora to know that, you know, the disruptions of colonialism and capitalism that have taken us further away from those traditional foods. I I wanted black food and just all the work that I do to be tools to help us find our way back to those
2: traditions. We're talking with Brian Terry, chef and food justice activist. He's editor and curator of the new cookbook, Black Food Stories, Art and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. What are your questions for Brian Terry? Phones are back up. Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. What's black food mean to you? at uh, 866-733-6786 you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook we're at KQED Forum we're going to go into the break hearing a bit of the song Bins by Solange Knowles it's part of the Leisure and Lifestyle section of Black Food we'll be back with more I'm Alexis Madrigal I just want to to the dollars on the the I just want
0: to support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera
3: Fresh
4: angry. Try it with your friend. New world water makes tide rise high. Come in land and make your house go by. Fools done upset the old
3: man river. Made him carry slave ships and fed him dead. Now was belly full and he's about the flood.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Chef Brian Terry about Black Food, a new cookbook he edited and curated, celebrating food, art, and stories of the African diaspora. That was a bit of Moe's death. He's now known as Yesim Bei. And his prescient song, New World Water, from 1999. It's a part of the land, liberation, and food justice section of black food. Uh, Brad, I want to ask you about the black future section. Uh, In part, I was really struck by Selassie Adadika's vision for kind of a new value chain around millet. Um, Just because it seemed like, wow, to kind of center a vision of the future around this like common grain seemed like a very interesting maneuver to me.
3: Yeah, um, I, I've been thinking about this for a while and I actually have been um, really uplifting Millet as a potential uh, way for us addressing hunger and poverty throughout Sub-Saharan Africa because it, it's such a, you know, just like hearty grain, nutrient rich. It grows in really um, rough conditions. And um, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the work that she's doing is spot on. And we we really need to be thinking about ways in which we can, you know, resuscitate and cultivate these ancient grains and superfoods um, that, you know, have been a part of our diets traditionally as a way to help us, you know, whether it's hunger and poverty and malnutrition or just addressing, you know, food insecurity. Yeah. Um, but I did want to just give you props for <laughs> I, I want to give KQED you props for playing like parts of the the soundtrack. <laughs> Which you can find uh, the Black Food Town track on Spotify, if people are interested in the playlist. And um, I don't know. Did you know that it was actually a hip hop song that was kind of like the 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 thing that catalyzed my food justice activism? No, <laughs> did I know? didn't.
2: But I mean, we got a shout out Ariana Prale, our producer, who who chose these selections and paired them up with our conversation. I mean, it's really. she's Thank so you, good. Ariana.
3: <laughs> but yeah, when I was in high school, um, I you know, hearing KRS One Boogie Down production. Um, the, the seminal hip-hop group with their lead uh, MC, K.R.S. One, I, I heard the song Beef from the album Edutainment. And, uh-huh. you know, I, whatever, was kind of convinced, as many of us are, that <laughs> because of the propaganda of the meat industry, the animals are just, the cows are just kind of running around in the field happily, and they just go to sleep and end up on our plates. And so it was shocking to me to learn about the, the violence of, um, you know, I, the, the, that our industrial... Food system, you know, the way in which it violently treats animals and the impact it has on the environment and on human health. And so hearing that song and just being so moved to just change my habits and attitudes and politics regarding food and then you know I asked my dad if he'd buy me the tape um entertainment <laughs> and he he said he would um but if I agreed to uh read this book The Jungle by Upton Sinclair and then um write him a one page essay because he's a tiger dad. Um but
2: <laughs> we had we had, the, we had the same dad. That's it that would be it. It's like you want to see that movie? Okay, great. You have to read the book. I was like Dad it's autobiography of Malcolm X. It's kind of
3: long. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah just to say that like those two things you know, my mantra for two decades has been start with the visceral to ignite the cerebral and end with the political because when I first started, you know, moving into this space around food justice, activism and, and the food movement, when I would go to these national conferences geared towards quote unquote fixing our food system, I was so bothered by the fact that the people who are most impacted by our broken food system, whether it's migrant farm laborers or people living in urban centers that are often described as quote unquote food deserts, like these people weren't in the room, they weren't driving in the conversation conversation. And I felt like there were a lot of class and educational um, mm-hmm. assumptions and, and biases in terms of like the way that the conversations were structured. And blame, and,
2: you know, this, it's just people making bad decisions, you know, that kind of thing.
3: Blaming the victim, like the classic not recognizing many of the structural barriers, the physical, the economic, the geographic barriers that people face to accessing healthy food or clean water or, you know, the air that isn't polluted by factories in, in our neighborhood. So all that to say is that, I understood the power of things like art and culture and literature because those are the things that move me. Those mm. are the things that help me change my habits and attitudes and, and politics regarding food. And that's why I'm so committed to using um multimedia, you know, not just text, not just appealing to like the cerebral, but really moving people on multiple levels. And um, I think that's one of the powerful ways of expanding um, the table and inviting uh, the most people into the conversation.
2: You know, One of the lines that really stuck with me from this book um, was, I think consuming the foods that our ancestors ate is one of the most powerful ways for us to move toward liberation. And I just thought it might be interesting to hear you reflect on on trying to move things to a plant-based world, but also knowing that our ancestors did eat meat and how to how to, how to reconcile those things kind of within yourself.
3: Ooh, you try to get me in trouble this morning, Alexis. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, now you're warmed up. So I figure now you're ready for it. <laughs> well, I, look,
3: I it's it's always been a tricky conversation because I, I recognize that you know, and I'm just going to keep it real. Like, yeah, maybe I don't want to keep it that real. Well, let me just say this. (laughs) I'm very clear. Well, one of the things that I think is often missing from the criteria of when we talk about like eating healthfully, I think so much emphasis is put on like nutrients and micronutrients. And I think there's some, there is something to us eating our ancestral foods. You know, I think about when my wife was pregnant and we had like you know, when she had our first daughter and we had like these traditional postpartum Chinese recipes that she was consuming for three months, because these are things that people, you know, they knew they had the practice, they had the history. They knew that these were the type of foods that you needed to eat to uh, rebuild the mother's constitution, to ensure that, you know, the milk was nutrient rich and all these things. And so I just think that, you know, our food, it, it carries our history, it carries our memories. And it's something that like, these are like, we've been turned away from the magic and, and brilliance of our own foods. You know, I hate the fact that when we talk about superfoods, and I know I've doubled down on superfoods a number of times <laughs> throughout this conversation. And it's because I want us to reframe the way that we often are convinced to think about these practices. You know, I think mm-hmm. about like, the fact that when we hear slow food, we automatically default towards like Western Europe and thinking about the brilliant Carlo Petrini and the activism that he started in Italy, but you can't tell me that my grandmother in the kitchen all day Saturday making food for Sunday supper isn't slow food Practices and traditions, and um, you know, I'm I'm happy that we're talking about quinoa and goji berries and acai (laughs) as these like (laughs) nutrient dense superfoods. But what about collard greens, which have like you know lots of vitamin A and C and anti cancer um, you know compounds? As you know, I'm not saying this as a scientist, but you know, some research studies have found these things. And so, I just really want people to reframe black food and celebrate it for all its brilliance, its nutrient density, and its way to connect us with who we are um, and, you know, our, our traditions from the past and help us think about how, how can we create traditions in this moment that are going to carry us through, you know, these perilous times that we're in.
2: So I'm, as I'm holding this book in my hands and I'm just feeling the the weight of it and the quality of the paper and the, the beauty of the artwork in it, I want to yeah. talk about you doing publishing now because this is the first book from this imprint for color books And I want to know what you're planning on on doing with it, because, I mean, this is a really nice start to a new imprint as an (laughs) artifact, as a book, as a thing
3: in the world. Thank you. Well, I knew that, you know, this is our flagship publication, so we had to come out hard. We had to like show and prove. And I feel like this is a great way of kind of establishing the way that. Um, this imprint shows up in the world. And so let me just say, there's the the, the, the publishing arm, which we're going to be publishing, you know, a few books per year as we start off and starting with My Wheelhouse, which is cookbooks and food-related books. But mm-hmm. as we grow, I want to publish everything that I'm interested in, from poetry to, you know, personal development and self-help to prescriptive nonfiction, um, lifestyle. You know, interestingly, the second book that we acquired, um... Was is actually an art book that is um, being created by this Brooklyn-based photographer Adrian Baril. But yeah, like I am so excited about helping diversify food media, bringing more people um, of color, and not just authors. You know, it's one thing to have like because I think because of 2020 and you know, the revelation of racism within a lot of food media and some of the legacy food media companies and some publishing company um, companies were called out. What we'll see over the next couple of years is just a barrage of um, books by black talent. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's important to move beyond just the the talent. Well, I mean, the people who we see, what about the, the quote unquote below the line people like food photographers, mm-hmm. food stylists, prop stylists, you know, all these people um, who, I mean, it's a very white field and I, I, and it's because so often it's about, you know, getting, being mentored and shadowing on set. And and so I really want us to help create more pipelines into food um, media and publishing. And I think that the reality is you can give as many book contracts out to people of color as you want, but if we aren't changing um, mm-hmm. the, the people who are in power, who are making decisions about what contracts will be given and what projects are worthy of elevating and celebrating, then when the door closes as it inevitably will, then we're just going to be back at square one. And that was a, one of the reasons that my agent and I, you know, we, 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 Just had to go for it. And I had to get over all these artificial barriers of when I get this many followers or have sold this many books or whatever I kind of propose would be the thing that would make me ready to start a publishing um, imprint. I just had to like, let that go and, and push through my fear. And I'm really excited about the work that, um, I mean, we, we, the first book we acquired was, uh, Rahana Bizarred Martinez, the, the brilliant Oakland-based, um, Afro-Latinx chef, 17 years old. She was a finalist on Top Chef Junior when she was 13. She's wow. cooked, stodged at r- some of the finest restaurants around the world, from Chez Panisse to Ecoy in London. She cooked at the James Beard house. And so we're going to be publishing her book, um, Adrian Breel's, um, art book. We are publishing the, Pizza. It's a pizza manifesto from the Afro-Dominican chef Scar Pimental. Uh, Scar's Pizzeria and Laurie Side is one of the um, the highly celebrated pizza shops in New York um, City now. So um, I'm excited about the books, but I just want to finish by saying that there's the action arm as well. So we're in the midst of planning a Black Food Summit that'll be happening in April at the Museum of the African Diaspora. We'll be bringing together a lot of the contributors to the book and others to just build community and to share skills and to, you know, just like be be with each other and eat and celebrate. Uh, we're amassing databases so that there there isn't the excuse. Well, we couldn't find a, a person of color to shoot the book or to do the food styling or do the prop styling, like or be the art director. Like we want to have these resources so that people can actually, you know put their money where their mouth is and, and do the work of bringing more um, brilliant BIPOC folks into this field.
2: Well, I wanted to give you a chance to shout out some of the people who worked uh, on your book, like Portia Burke, um, right? She helped get a new edition of Toni Morrison's The Black Book out there in the world. And then she also worked on this book. Who are some of those other folks who, who, as you said, b- below the line, you know, people who are <laughs> who are who are really important for the production of something like this?
3: Yeah, big up to my publisher, 10 Speed Press, for really just being so open to the collaborative process of this and and moving beyond the people in-house. And we were able to bring in Portia Burke, who's a longtime editor um, at Penguin Random House. As you said, she um, helped with the republishing of Toni Morrison's Black Book, as well as um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. She was um, Maya Angelou's editor. Jenny Wapner, one of the most brilliant um publishers or editors slash publishers in food media you know she just happened to be between jobs she was a project manager on black food this book could not have happened without Mm -hmm. jenny's brilliance and publishing expertise george mccallman our art director that um you know betsy stromberg who's the art director at 10 speed was so generous in allowing him to come in and um take charge of this project because i you know I, i just i made it clear that for a book like this we needed a, not just a Black art director, but a Black art director who understands Black visual language and aesthetics and history and could connect with this work spiritually. And, and that's what we got with George. And he brilliantly designed the book and this award winning cover, you know, and, and the, the charge that I gave George, I was like, I I want a cover that departs from what most people imagine when they see cookbooks. And I want one that speaks to both um black people and food with having neither black people nor food on the cover <laughs> he's like oh boy this is gonna be a long week <laughs> <laughs> but he killed it and yeah and so you know our, our photographer Oriana Corin, our prop stylist Jillian Kang our food stylist Lillian Kang and their assistants and I and Amanda Yee, my creative director um, who's living in Berlin. And so I just want to shout out all those people because this is not my book. I am a good leader. I'm a good team builder. And I built a brilliant team that helped execute this vision that I had. And I think that um, that's the ethos of For Color. We want to do things that bring in community, that is collaborative, and that really pushes this um, movement
2: and just the field of cookbook writing and food writing forward so you've said that this is your last cookbook do you think that's really true you don't think that in like a few years you're gonna say like you know i think i have this new itch these new recipes (laughs) that i want to get in front of people you know um this is it for me i
3: I always said i wanted to quote unquote go out when i'm on top and having such a stellar year with um dude you're like 40 come on (laughs) But you know, the real thing, Alexis, I want to take this next period to really focus on being a good publisher. I don't I don't Mm -hmm. know. I mean, I know about publishing because I've been in food media, but I'm in a period where I'm awkward. I'm goofy. Let me I I started doing CrossFit like four months ago and And I love it. I'm not like a cultish person, but I love CrossFit. But I feel like it's interesting that I'm doing CrossFit as I'm starting this publishing company because I'm awkward. I'm figuring stuff out. I'm a little goofy. I need a lot of support and help. And I like being in that place. And I really want to be able to focus all my energy on being a good publisher. Because I think one of the most powerful things that Four Color will do is modeling. I want us to model a different way that um, publishing books um can look like and so i want to give all my energy to it and i feel like i've had a stellar career as an author and it's time to hang up the cleats
2: (laughs) so um really quickly last uh minute here someone picks up the book what's a recipe they should just turn to and go like all right this is this is my entry point i'm gonna start here
1: Woo!
3: not
2: your favorite but
3: just a starting point just a starting point the sweet potato snack by the um the 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 brilliant howard dr howard conyers who's literally a, a rocket scientist for nasa <laughs> and he's also been um you know resuscitating these whole hawk cooking traditions in his family and he comes from a family of sweet potato gar uh farmers and i like the recipe that he has in there it's such a simple recipe it's just grilling sweet sweet potatoes. I think you can add some butter or olive oil on it. And I love the simplicity of that. I love the image of that. It's one of my favorite images in the book. But when I think about like just the beauty of local seasonal sustainable food. You know, always, we could talk about the politics. You could talk about the environmental and economic reasons to eat in this way that we promote, but I know people are self-interested. And one of the things I often say is that when you get food that's locally grown, that's in season, that's been harvested, like very recently, it's going to be so much more flavorful than something that's been sitting on refrigerator trucks coming from California for, you know, a couple of weeks and then sitting in a refrigerator. And that's what, um, a good entry point. So when you have that, something like a sweet potato that's fresh, all you need to do is simply
2: prepare it and it's just going to be brilliant and delicious. Yeah. One comment before we go. Hillary writes, thank you for this conversation. I'm excited to purchase this book and I want to emphasize your guest point about superfoods. So many amazingly nutritious and delicious foods grow right here. Don't require exploitation of other economies. We've been talking with Brian Terry, chef and food justice activist, new books, black food stories, art and recipes from across the African diaspora. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me, Alexis. It's been a pleasure.
2: Earlier we were joined by Reverend Marvin K. White, and we're going to close things out with Kay Trinata and his song Do It, which is part of Black Queer Food section of Black Food. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.